You are listening to New City Servant Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep into God's word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of his kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. Today we're going to talk about worship or gathering to glorify God. Now when we talk about worship, uh, we might think about something like a certain part of the service, like the singing part. Or we might think about a style of music, worship music, or an album that we like. Well, really the whole service is a worship service. Every part of it is designed to worship God. And not only that, but all of life is really worship. All of life is worship. It's lived for the glory of God. And so God has lots to say about worship. First of all, what is worship? Well, worth is the root word of worship, ascribing worth to someone. It's an old English word, worth-ship. In other words, you're glorifying, you're putting the weight, you're honoring somewhere else besides yourself. You're proclaiming the worth of someone who is greater than you. And in the Bible, we see worship used a couple different ways. The first way is when you worship, you lower yourself, you bow before someone else who's greater, and you honor them. But another way that worship is used in the Bible is this idea of work or service. And so when Israel had the sacrificial system in the temple, the priests did the work of worship. They were the ones that taught the people and offered the sacrifices on the, be- the people's behalf, and that all was the work of worship. But today, we're going to talk about what happens in this room for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. We are going to talk about gathering together to worship Jesus, gathering to glorify him. And so let me pray, and then we're going to read an assortment of scriptures to shape us as we look at God's word. Jesus, we need our minds to be renewed by you today. We need to understand worship from your perspective. And as we do that, we pray that we become more fully alive. We would worship in a way that's more pleasing to you. We would have confidence in who you are. Father, we pray that you would shape us and you would make us more into the image of your son as we get your word. And all God's people said, amen. Psalm 100 says, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly or the gathering. Psalm 134 says, lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. John 4, Jesus says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God, from 1 Corinthians 10. And then Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, give your attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In Hebrews 10, it says, and let us watch out for one another 
to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. James 4, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting or your gathering wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you throw a celebration in someone's honor, who is that celebration for? Is it for you as a celebrator, or is it for the one being celebrated? And how you answer that question affects how you throw the party. Before Virginia and I were dating, we were friends, and she was actually dating some other guy. I'll call him the boo guy, because I gave him boo, you know. (laughs) She was dating this other guy, and this other guy and her roommate, by the way, she said I could tell this story, so... She's in with the kids. That other guy and her roommate decided to throw her a party. But not just any party. They were going to throw her a surprise party. My wife does not like surprise parties. She really does not like surprise parties. And not only were they going to throw a surprise party, but when when she got there, they were going to, like, hide in her room, which is an even, like, greater surprise, jump out and surprise her. My wife does not like surprise parties, but it's not like this. It's not like, oh, you guys got me. Okay, now on to the party. She's not like that. It's not even like she falls over and needs a minute to recover. If she's surprised at a surprise party, it's like sheer terror. She feels like she's about to be attacked. That's the emotional reaction she has. It's just not in her, you know, in her personality to enjoy surprises. So the night of the party comes, and we all gather in Virginia's room, and we hear the front door open, and we hear her footsteps, and she opens her bedroom door and flips on the light, and we all yell, surprise! And it was as if our voices picked her up off her feet, carried her through the living room and out the front door, because before we even finished the word surprise, she was in the parking lot. She literally like ran outside because she was utterly terrified. She hates surprises. Emotionally, she can't handle it. She thought someone was about to attack her. Well, she was able to eventually calm down and come back and enjoy the party. And she did break up with that guy. I don't know if it was because of the surprise, but, uh, and that's when I made my move. But listen, when you throw a celebration in someone's honor, who is the celebration for? Is it for the people celebrating 
or the one being celebrated. And how you answer that question affects how you throw the party. Because if you throw a party for someone who likes chocolate cake, you do not bring key lime pie. If the, if the celebration is for them, you don't have the party indoors if they love being outdoors. And listen, if the celebration is for them, you do not surprise them if they are terrified of surprises. A party includes you as a celebrator, but it's directed towards the one who is being celebrated. It's not for you, but you're included as a participant. And maybe that idea, that framework for thinking about a celebration will help us as we think about this. What we do Sunday mornings at 10.30 here at New City Fellowship in East Hollywood. As we gather to celebrate our God, our weekly worship service includes you as a participant, but it's ultimately not for you. It's for God. It's a celebration of him and his son and his spirit and all the things that, they, that he has done for us. And we gather with the purpose of celebrating, of glorifying, of praising and worshiping and giving honor and adoring, we gather to glorify. That's the main reason that we come. And throughout the Bible, as we talk about worship, you see that people worship as individuals, like just by themselves in the rooms. They pray, they fall on their face, they worship. And other times there is spontaneous worship where God does something miraculous and people just gather together and start praising and yet, what we're talking about today is this gathering, where something unique happens as we come together. We're talking about the gathering where we glorify God. A lot of people don't place emphasis on the Sunday morning gathering, and they say, listen, I can worship Jesus on my own time. Not only that, I get more out of worship by myself at the beach. So I'm going to do that. A lot of people say that. A lot of people like to do that. But let's put that back in the celebration framework. If everyone called the person being celebrated and said, actually, I'm not coming to your party. There's a more convenient time for me that I'd like to get together with you. And so I'm going to do that on my time. Is that honoring the person being celebrated? Isn't there something unique that happens when we come together and say, this isn't just my thing. This is our thing. We're all pointing to the same person. We're committing to be inconvenient so that we can celebrate and worship our God. It's not just an individual experience. It's something that we're doing as a family. Hebrews 10 says, do not neglect being together. Do not neglect gathering together because it is how we encourage one another. And Jesus himself said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. And so the worship by ourselves is perfectly biblical. There's something unique that happens here on Sunday morning as we gather to glorify Jesus. And it's important as we gather together that we let God's design for worship infiltrate our practice of worship. Because worship is not our idea. Worship is first and foremost not our idea to God, but rather something that God invites us into. We were created for. That's why every service we start off with a call to worship. It's a reminder that God himself is inviting us to come and be his people and celebrate him together. 
Because we are made for worship. God created us to worship him. That's why Adam and Eve were created. Our, our greatest calling as people is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And some people say, well, doesn't that make God kind of self-centered? Doesn't that make God kind of needy if he made us to worship him and then he invites us into worship? Well, the reality is we will worship something if we're not worshiping God. All of us are in a constant search to fill our hearts and find an identity and center our lives on something greater than ourselves. We were made to worship, and God invites us to come and find wholeness as we worship him. Tom Wood and Scott Thomas say it this way, we worship that which gives us our identity. Since we are created to worship, we will inevitably center our lives on something to worship, whether we realize it or not. Worship is like a fire hose that has gotten stuck in the on position and is endlessly shooting water out with great force. We must decide where to aim that hose. That's choosing the focus of our worship. And so every Sunday morning, God invites us to come together and recenter our lives on him, to fill our souls up with him, to find that place of awe in him and to find our identity through him, to worship. Worship is God's idea and we are made for worship and therefore it is very important that we actually let God tell us how worship works. We follow God's plan for worship. Did you know that God actually has preferences about worship and commands to follow in worship, and he himself has a framework for how worship works. If you've read the beginning of the Bible, you know that one of the first worship presentations that happened is when Cain and Abel both bring an offering in worship to God. Cain was a farmer, and so he brings the best of his produce, and Abel is a shepherd, a livestock keeper, and so he brings the best of his livestock. And yet it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. God actually had a preference. Not only that, but God has commands for worship. God has commands for worship. In the book of Leviticus, as the people are forming this new community of worshipers, Moses and Aaron following God's commands, offer a sacrifice to God as God had commanded. And a fire comes out of nowhere and consumes the sacrifice and all of a sudden the people know God is here and they all bow down and worship. But then Aaron's sons step into the scene. Who, they're also trained to be priests. And it says that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan and put fire in it, placed incense on it and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu actually step into worship, and they're like, we've got a good idea for worship that God had not commanded them to do. And that should sober us because not only does God have preferences for worship, God actually has commands for worship and a framework for worship, a framework that includes all of our lives. In Amos 5, God challenges his people, and they're feasting together in 
his name. They're gathering together to worship him. They're offering offerings and singing to their God. And God says, I don't like any of it. I don't like any of it. And the reason he says he doesn't like any of it is because they're coming together to worship God, but when they go out of the gathering, they're not living for God. They're not repenting of their sins. They're just singing, but they're not living their lives for God. And their biggest sin that he points out is that they're treating each other unjustly. They don't care for each other as they live their life. And God says, I don't like your worship because it's just about a gathering that doesn't include the rest of your life. See, we must follow God's plan for our worship because if it's really about him, then he gets to set the agenda. He gets to give us the plan. Now, I know, I know, and I went through this as I was thinking about it. I was like, isn't God just happy that we show up? Like, isn't God just happy that we took some time out of our week to come together and, and go to church? And, and by the way, shouldn't God be happy that we get something out of the service? I mean, sometimes it's the worship's uh, uh, amazing, and sometimes the sermons are not. And, and aren't, shouldn't he be just glad that we show up every week? to get something out of it? Shouldn't God want us to keep coming back? Well, think about that back with the celebration, the birthday party. You show up at that party. Aren't you just glad that I'm here? Shouldn't this be a little bit more about me so that I come to your next birthday party? Isn't that, wouldn't that be to communicate low thoughts about the person being celebrated? I'm doing you a favor by being here. Oftentimes in the American church, we treat God and the worship of him that way. God, I'm doing you a favor by being there. I, I'm doing you a favor. A lot of people approach worship as if it's something to get something out of rather than to glorify someone else. Rather than glorify someone else. And what we see trending in American churches is this human-centered style of worship. We're, we'll be about God as long as God is all about us. But the truth is, God is about God. God is about God. And so people are saying, listen, it's not about blessing God, it's about what you prefer. It, it's, it's not about you worshiping God, it's all about God doing for you. John Piper puts it this way, People are willing to be God-centered, it seems, as long as God is man-centered. Another way to say that is people will come to the party for God as long as that party is all about them. As long as that party is all about them. When we worship God, we are not the point. God is the point. We're here to bless him and glorify him and love him and praise him. But the crazy thing is, when we gather to glorify God, we actually do get something out of it. We get God. We get God. God promises that his presence would be with us as his people, as we glorify him together. When he is the focus, we get God. And so we do praise him. We glorify him through singing. Psalm 100 says, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. We shout 
We sing with joy. We're glad because of who God is and what he has done for us. Colossians 3 says it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Psalms are the psalms. That has been the, the, the songbook of God's people for thousands of years. Hymns, like in Christ alone. Spiritual songs are just songs that are motivated by the Spirit about Jesus and God the Father. And we're to sing those as we focus on Christ. Notice it says, let the word of Christ dwell, dwell richly in you. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is reminding us of is that our worship happens through Jesus Christ. It happens through the good news. And we often forget what it would be like to worship God without Jesus. I mentioned the story of Isaiah earlier. I would encourage you to read the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6 later today. Isaiah has this vision of him before God in all his glory. And there are angels surrounding God going, holy, holy, holy. And the train of God's robe fills the temple. And when Isaiah comes into contact with the God of the universe, he is undone. Immediately when he sees God's glory, he recognizes that he is a broken sinner. And Isaiah, who was a prophet, who spoke professionally for a living, says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies." When Isaiah comes face to face with God, he is terribly aware of his uncleanness and his deficiencies before the God of the universe. He is aware of his sin in the midst of God's glory. And right at that moment, an angel flies towards him from God. And that angel is holding tongs. And in the end of that tongs is a coal. And the coal is glowing hot. And you think, oh no, Isaiah is about to get smelted under the wrath of God. But in this vision that Isaiah has, the angel reaches the coal forward and touches Isaiah's lips, the very thing that Isaiah had confessed was sinful. And the angel says to him what I said to you earlier, Isaiah, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. And that is the very thing that happens to us through Jesus Christ. Which is why every week we rehearse the gospel. We confess our sins during the service silently in our minds before God. But then you hear the good news of the gospel to remind us that if we came to worship God without Jesus, we would be in trouble. But we don't come without Jesus. We come with him. We come with Jesus. And so that's why Paul focuses us in on the word of Christ and doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him because we worship God because of what Jesus has done for us. And notice what he says, teaching 
and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teaching means instruction. Admonition means an urging. Instruction and urging. And it's interesting to think about that. I mean, think about the lyrics that we sang this morning. If you can put those up. How did we instruct and urge each other even as we sang? By his stripes, we are healed. By his nail-pierced hands, we're free. By his blood, we're washed clean. Now we have the victory. We're teaching each other the gospel again even as we sing. Quien es el que vive? Cristo es el que vive. I say that as a white guy. You heard it. But what it means is who's risen from the dead? Jesus is risen from the dead. We remind each other and we instruct and teach each other as we sing that Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated sin, death, and the devil on our behalf. But then we also urge each other. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. We're reminding each other, is Christ your hope? Or are you finding your hope in something else? And even in that, I have to examine my own heart and urge my own heart, don't find hope in anything but Jesus Christ. And then as we sing, my hallelujah belongs to you, you deserve it. We're reminded that God does not owe us anything. We are urging our own hearts to submit to God in worship of him and go, he's the one who deserves it. And all of those songs were in really different styles, right? None of them actually came from the same category or genre. And part of the reason we do that is because we want to be a blended family of diverse people. And we recognize that you might connect with one style of music, but your cultural background, you might not connect with another. And so our hope is that everyone feels a little bit affirmed when we sing, but that you also feel uncomfortable and are stretched because God is the God of all people. And people sing differently to him. And not one style captures worship. Instruct and urge one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's different than we think about worship in our culture. And what I'm going to talk about an extreme. An extreme in our Christian culture is that worship is a private experience. But what Paul's saying is, is that worship is more like group discipleship. We're instructing and urging each other. And we tend to think that the primary purpose of worship is emotional. But Paul's saying, at least here, that it is instructional. Like we're Training, being trained how to think. And in light of that, I want to talk about emotions for a minute in worship. Because some of us come from backgrounds where it is all emotions, and some of us come to backgrounds where it's no emotions, and like, this is an emotional expression, raising your hand right here, right? So what do we do with emotions? Well, the goal of worship is not an emotional experience. The goal is to worship God. And so some people can think, look, i got to go and I'm going to get an emotional experience and that's what's going to carry me through the week. If I get that emotional high. Now that's not bad, but it's very limited. It's a very limited view of worship. And here's why. You can be emotionally charged in worship without being spiritually changed by worship. You can be emotionally charged without being spiritually changed. 
And Vadi Bacham says it this way. He says, the modern church is producing passionate people, listen to this, passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. So you, you can be emotionally charged without spiritually connecting to Jesus. And in our day and age, we're so in tune with our emotions and feelings that we think that's who we are. We are not our emotions. We have emotions, but we are not our emotions. And the goal that Paul tells us in Colossians 3 is that we would instruct and urge each other. And so if you think about worship like working out, you go to work out for two reasons. One is a short-term goal and one is a long-term goal. If you're feeling down one afternoon, you go and work out and you get a rush of endorphins. You feel good. It's good, right? It's good because it picks you up. You don't need a nap. You can keep going. But if you only go and get that workout to get those endorphins, you'll only go when you want an emotional high. But the point of working out is this rhythm that over time, it doesn't just give you a rush, it actually trains and shapes your body. And worship is a little bit of both. It's not unemotional, but it's not only emotional. It trains us over time, as just as long-term fitness would train you as you keep showing up. And so the part a part of worship isn't near, merely being charged with emotions, but also being changed by truth over time. And emotions are not bad. Please do not hear me say that. If you read the Psalms, the psalmist is constantly talking about how he feels. But emotions are not the point. Because if emotions become the point, then we're really worshiping our emotions rather than God. Does that make sense? Emotions are not the point of worship, but now I'm going to say something else. They are part of worship. They are part of worship. What does he say? Have gratitude in your hearts to God. It's hard to picture having gratitude in my heart to God without actually feeling something. I'm thankful, God. You can't do it. I'm thankful, God, right? It's emotions. Emotions are there, and it's hard to think about that in a non-emotional way. Some of us are more reserved in our worship, and you worship God like Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. Do you remember Sam the Eagle from the Muppets? That's Sam the Eagle in full-on worship mode right there. It's hard to picture worshiping like Sam the Eagle if you're really thankful for what God has done for your salvation, if he saved you out of hell in his wrath. And now you're part of his family through what Christ has done. Worship evokes emotions. It's an emotional thing. And as we look at worship in the Bible, when people come in an encounter with God in worship, they experience fear and joy, conviction, sadness, hope, and longing. And in response to that, they lift their hands. They shout out. They clap. They respond as they feel emotions and connect in worship with God. And maybe for some of you who prefer the, the Sam Eagle style of worship, maybe, maybe growing in worship would mean that you actually take a chance in self-expression, not for yourself, but for the king. If he's the king, I can raise my hands. If he's risen from the dead, I can clap. If he sent his spirit, I can shout. Maybe you would allow yourself to sing with joy. Because we glorify him through singing. But we also glorify him by listening. By listening. 
When you go to someone else's party, you can talk, but you also got to listen to what the one being celebrated says. And look what Paul says to Timothy, a young pastor. Think about the weight of this. Give your attention. Give your attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching, instruction and urging through the Word of God. Timothy, this young pastor, is being told to let God speak often through his word. That's why we do a lot of Bible at our worship service, because we want to give the king a chance to speak. And what the Bible says is that is his word. The Spirit has inspired men with his word in order that we might be instructed. And so we want to give our attention to the public reading of Scripture to urging and instructing through Scripture because God's presence is so closely tied to his word. I mean, think about all the different times that God speaks. When he speaks, it's his presence. When he creates the world, he speaks it. Jesus himself is called the word made flesh. John Frame says it this way, God's word is inseparable from God himself. Everything God does, he does by speaking his word. We should draw two implications from this for worship. First, where God's word is, God is. We should never take God's word for granted. To hear the word of God is to meet with God himself. Second, where God is, the word is. We should not seek to have an experience with God which bypasses or transcends his word. Now look, the Bible's not an easy book to understand. At the same time, it is God's book, and part of our worshiping him is learning it that we might understand what he's saying to us. And so our goal is not to hide the word of God, to make it easier to worship, but actually let God speak so that he could change us and make us more like him. And so if you notice sometimes the music that the worship team picks is in line with the theme of the sermon because we want to be preaching God's word all through the service. And as we hear it, our goal is to respond, to not just hear it but respond and then do it. We want to ask for God's help in changing our thinking through the word and changing what we love through the word and then actually walking out the word in real life because it is his word. We glorify him by singing to him joyfully. We glorify him by listening. But we also glorify him by serving each other on Sunday mornings. That's worship. We glorify and worship him by giving generously back to him during the tithes and offerings. By confessing what we believe together. That's the Apostles' Creed that we did. And by showing no partiality. Did you catch that passage from James 4? How sharp that instruction was that when we gather together, we can't have a status system about who gets what attention and who gets treated better because we are all equal in Christ. If we are truly in Christ, then the status we have has nothing to do with who we are but Jesus' identity over us. We are all God's children through Jesus Christ. And to treat each other in a different way would be to show partiality that does not reflect God's heart for worship. But we also glorify God by feasting. 
which is what this table is about right here. We come together and take the Lord's Supper as a way to glorify him. The reason that we don't show partiality to each other is that Jesus doesn't show partiality to us, and that's what this table says. Jesus is the point of our worship, yet at the very same time, he's the one that provides the meal for us to eat. This is a spiritual meal where we come to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we proclaim his death until he returns. We're strengthened as we see these, and remember that they represent the body that has been broken and the blood that has been shed for you. He did it for you, and so we often end our service by feasting on him, and that's part of our worship. We come to glorify him, and yet this meal says we get him. He's our God, and we're his people, and we partake of this meal to remember that that is true. But we also have to follow his plan for this as well. We have to follow his plan for this meal. This meal is for all who give themselves fully to Jesus, who has fully given himself to you. It's different than the rest of the service. The rest of the service, anyone can participate in singing. The rest of the service, anyone can hear the word. Anyone can greet each other. This is a different part of the service. It's not just about going to church. This table is for those who have made a decision to follow Jesus. It's for those who have made a decision to follow Jesus and reject all other spiritual paths and say, my spiritual path is centered on the cross. I have repented of my sins. I have proclaimed my faith publicly. I've told people I'm a Christian, and I have been baptized. And if that's not you, we're not here to judge you because we've all been where you are. But we would ask that you refrain from partaking of this meal. Because to say that you're attached to Jesus without having, actually having made a decision to Jesus is inauthentic. And so I want to encourage you to pray, even as Isaiah prayed, Lord, if you're real, show yourself to me and show me my sin that I might see the Savior. And if that's something that you decide today while you're in your seat, please come see us after the service. And we'll talk about your next steps as you follow Jesus. But then secondly, this table is a symbol of Jesus' body and blood. And here we are, and we're called Christ's body. We're called Christ's body. This table is for people who have fully given themselves to Jesus and are expressing that by being part of a local church. They're part of a local church. It's not a table for New City people. It's a, it's a table for Jesus people who are expressing their faith by being connected to a local church. So if you're part of this church and you're plugged in or you're part of another church somewhere else, this table is for you. But I want to I offer a little pushback. If you're following Jesus but you have no connection to any church, I would encourage you not to take the table. And here's why. Following Jesus is not a private party. It's not a private party with him. It's for broken, messed up people who are following him together as a family. And so this meal we take isn't just an individual celebration. It's something that we do because we say, just as here is represented Christ's body, I'm part of the body. And I'm living that out together. The issue is not whether Jesus loves you. 
The issue is whether you're worshiping him by walking together in a local church. And Jesus has a fuller worship for you. Not to you, but Jesus wants to invite you into a fuller worship of him if you're not part of a local church. And that doesn't have to be New City. That can be any church. But let me encourage you that Jesus would invite you into more. And that this table is for those who have followed Jesus and are following him together with other believers. And if that's not you, let me encourage you to sit in your seat and just pray. Say, Lord, why am I resisting being part of a local congregation? Because Jesus did do this for his followers. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In a similar way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Brothers and sisters, if, if your hope is in Jesus Christ and you've walking with a logo church, this is Jesus saying, you've come to glorify me, but I want you to get something. I want you to get me. I want you to know that I'm committed to you. As you worship me, I love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no sin that you can do that will cause me to love you less. Your relationship with me isn't based on your faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus. And we're reminded that every time we take this table, which is why we take it so seriously. And as you do, be, be reminded of this. As you have come to worship Jesus, he wants you to leave spiritually full. He really does. We come to give something, but he gives us himself so that we could go out and live lives of worship for him the rest of the week. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that you have done everything we need to be reconciled and restored to God. And we pray for those that are here today that are on a spiritual journey and are wrestling with where they are. If they're not following you, Lord, give them the freedom to pray and ask that you would show them who you really are as the righteous king, but also as the savior. And for those, Lord, that are resistant to plugging into a church, Father, I pray that you would give them a boldness to admit where they really are and that they might seek reconciliation. We know that being part of a church is not perfect. People can be hurt by the church, and that's very real. But we ask that you would give them the courage to plug back in. And for those who love you, for those who worship you, for those who gathered this morning to glorify you, might you remind them deeply of your love for them. And all God's people said,